Good morning. Enjoyed worshiping with you this morning. I hope it's been a pleasure to, uh, to be here. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to, uh, to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be as we get ready to dive into Manger Things, chapter 5. <clears throat> we are rapidly nearing the dramatic conclusion of this series titled Manger Things. And we've done so, we've done so by, by looking at the story that we see throughout, throughout all of Scripture. Now, last week I gave you a, a new word. That word was, was meta-narrative, if you remember that. What a meta-narrative is, is it's an overarching story that tells about how the universe operates. And for those of us who are Christians, who have given our life to Jesus, who we look to the Bible... And we, we believe that it is good, that it is God's Word, and that we submit to it, then for us, our meta-narrative is the story that we, see in, that we see in Scripture. Now, for the last several weeks, we have been using the, the Netflix drama, Stranger Things, to help us tell this story. And so over the past four weeks, we have plunged into the to the strange world and the really strange things that we read about in the Bible and the story of God. We've talked quite a bit about the, the upside down. And this is the connection that, that I have found so intriguing between the, the, the show and what we're talking about here. So once again, I want us to read about the upside down. And you'll notice this week I have the last sentence underlined. So I want you to read that with me out loud. But the upside down is an alternate dimension existing in parallel to the human world. It contains the same locations and infrastructure as the human world, but it is much darker, colder, and obscured by an omnipresent fog, and together it is a corrupted and decayed form of the real world. And that's what I've been building my case on for the last four weeks, and we'll continue to today and even into in the next week. Because the fallen state of the world, you know, I'm, I see the connection there, is, is the upside down. In God's world, it is not as it should be. It's not as He originally intended things to be. The world we live in now, it is beautiful, but we know that the world has problems with it, Right? Who has had a cold recently? Okay. Who has stumped a toe recently or stubbed a toe recently or, or, or lost a toe recently? Who is, is dealing with other kinds of, of illnesses or, or had a bad day? Anybody? Okay. We all have those things and they are all because of the way the world is. Because we live in the world, and it is beautiful, right? I mean, it is a really beautiful world, but it is not as beautiful as God originally intended it because sin came in and corrupted things. And so that's the parallel that I've been making over the last several weeks is that the upside down, this, this, this corrupted and decayed form of the real world is what we live in right now. Because it is not as, as God intends. 
And so for the first three chapters, we explored the beginning of the world and how God pushed back the waters and the, and the chaos and He brought it all under control as He, as he created the world, that yet the world became the, the upside down. God's people, they chose the path of the, the surrounding nations rather than to obey God. And so God allowed them to be carried off into captivity at two different times, first by the Assyrians in, in 722, and then later by the Babylonians in 586 BCE. And this is when, when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple was, was absolutely destroyed. So God lets them be carried off into captivity, into the upside down, because they have refused to listen to him. They've refused to obey and to do what he has asked them to do. They've refused to be the light that God created them to be. Because remember, Israel, God's chosen people, chosen nation, was supposed to be the light for all of the world. But they wanted a king and they wanted everything else like all the other nations. And so God relented he said, okay. It's a bad idea, but if that's really what you want, I'll give it to you. And he did, and it just led them down a path deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness. And so they ended up carried off into, into captivity, but God was not content to let them be obliterated. He was not content to let them die out, and so he left something. He left this remnant of people who were faithful and who believed in him and believed in, in what he was doing. And this small group of people, through this small group of people, God would, uh, would enact some really strange things. Things that are strange and hard to understand and defy logic and, and reason, but it's through those strange things that God is going to bring about something different. And he begins to give the people hope. He began to give them something to look forward to, something off in the distance, and not just something, but someone. But who was this someone? Who was it that they were waiting on, and, and who was coming and why? God's people are, are, are deep in the upside down because they've run off the rails because they refuse to, to trust in his plan. And then Isaiah begins to prophesy. He says they will look toward the earth and they will see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. They won't be able to, to see what is surrounding them. But then Isaiah begins to, to prophesy again, and he begins to talk about this child who is coming, who is going to be called Wonderful Counselor who's going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and, and Prince of Peace. It is, a, it is a, a child who is coming. And so from the darkness, the people who are walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. But Isaiah doesn't end his prophecy here. He began to, to speak of another, of a forerunner, in Isaiah chapter 40 and in Malachi chapter 30 that talked about the one who would cry out in the wilderness. The one who was going to prepare the way and to, to make ready the path for the coming 
of the Son of God. Well, shortly after Malachi prophesies, there's 400 years of silence. During that, that 400 years where God's people are just sitting there in the darkness, in the upside down, there is no divine spokesperson that comes forth. Not a word from God is heard. But there is that hopeful anticipation that someone is coming. And then last week as we got into to chapter 4, the forerunner, we finally entered the world of the New Testament and after 400 years of silence, something is beginning to happen. And so where we picked up the story last week, we see that, that Luke is, is setting the stage for us with the birth of, of John the Baptist. But it happened in a really strange way. And in a, in a way that is completely abnormal to any of us because the people who were chosen to be the parents of John the Baptist were really old, well along, well past childbearing years. Remember, Zechariah is there and he's serving in the temple and Gabriel shows up and tells him, you're going to have a baby. And he's struggling with that. He says, how can this happen? I'm old. You know, that's a perfectly normal question. And Gabriel hits him with silence. Gives him a nine-month time out to think about it. And so he spends that time waiting, thinking, processing, hoping for that day when his son is going to be born. And finally, finally, John is born. The messenger that, that Isaiah and Malachi have prophesied about is here. God is breaking through the upside down. So with no further delay, let's get into chapter 5. Magnificat. So today, the story that we're going to look at, it's, it's pretty similar to what we talked about last week. Because just like last week, we have another very unlikely birth story. Last week, we had this, this elderly, very devout couple who's very old. And this week, we have another very kind of strange birth story that happens to Mary, who is very young and unmarried. Both mothers that we've read about, Elizabeth and today Mary, are going to have sons who have been prophesied about. Both announcements come through angelic visits, but this is where the parallels end. Zechariah and Mary are going to ask essentially the same question, how can this be? But they receive two drastically different responses. Zechariah, when he says, how can this be? How can this happen? You know, he gets nine months of silence. Mary is going to ask essentially the same question, and what we're going to see is that she gets an explanation. And then like any good filmmaker, Luke describes the, the birth announcement and the extraordinary pregnancy of Elizabeth and then cuts away to this, this outlying burg in southern Galilee called Nazareth. And Nazareth has a reputation because nothing good comes from Nazareth. 
So let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. He hadn't even said what he wants yet. And she's troubled by this. Okay, just a good rule of thumb. Anytime an angel shows up, it's okay to be terrified. Okay? You got that? So the next time you're just, you know, what, going about your day, whatever, you know, you're just, you know, you're, you're working on a task or you, maybe you're, you're, you're doing the dishes or somewhere, you're reading somewhere and all of a sudden an angel shows up, it's okay to be scared. Okay to be frightened, okay? And, and, and know this too, that they, he wants something. Okay, you're, something is going to be asked or required of you. So Gabriel shows up, and it says that Mary's deeply troubled by this. I mean, wouldn't you be? Yeah, I would. And she has no clue what he wants yet. But then he lays it on her. The angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary. You're right. For you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will name him, say it with me, Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Here is Mary, this Jewish, probably teenage girl, who is off in just some remote part of the world in, in, in Galilee, and more specifically in Nazareth, who John is going to record that nothing good comes out of there. And then all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up and says, Rejoice, favored woman. You're going to give birth to a son. And not just any son. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. And he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. Can you imagine a more difficult task for an unmarried teenage mother? To raise the son of God. Now then, I've got a kid that kind of thinks he's God. This one actually is God. Can you imagine that? Imagine what is going through her mind. Okay, she has probably heard the prophecies. She probably can't read them, but she's probably a little bit familiar with them. She, like the rest of the remnant, is waiting on the one who has been prophesied, waiting on Jesus to show up, and she has just been tapped on the shoulder and said, oh, by the way, you're going to be his mom. You are going to raise the Son of God. Pretty easy task, right? Mary is, is so honest. 
Verse 34 says, she asked the angel, how can this be since I've not had sexual relations with a man? Okay? Birds and the bees. Okay? Takes two to tango. We get it. Okay? Mary is saying, I've not been tangoing. Okay? I'm not married. Okay? She is betrothed to Joseph, where for a year they, they are publicly sort of regarded as husband and wife, but they don't take on the full rights of husband and wife, meaning the physical part of the relationship, until after that betrothal year comes to an end. She is engaged and pregnant, not married and pregnant. And so she asks a very good question. Uh, excuse me. I mean, she's obviously had the birds and the bees talk because she knows what's going on. And she says, how is this going to happen? And instead of being struck with silence, like Zechariah, Mary receives an explanation. Then the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now then, Mary could have had any response in the world. She could have said, no, not me. You must be mistaken. But her response in verse 38 is, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And it says, then the angel left her. And you know what I see about this that is remarkable? Is that this teenage Jewish girl in this remote spot of the world where nothing good comes from, she is the first person, the first human to accept Jesus for who he is. You see that? What if she had said no? Because I'm pretty sure God does not force his will upon us. What if she had said no? But she didn't. She said, I'm the Lord's servant, and if this is what you say has to happen, then so be it. You know, as we've, we've gone through the scriptures over the years, there's, there's been this sort of struggle for, for children and then sort of God moving on people's behalf. And you see kind of the, the different responses. You have Abraham and Sarah. You know, they're this elderly couple who God says, I'm going to create a nation out of you. And, and Abraham is old and Sarah is old. And, and, and Sarah's response is to, to laugh. You have Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it's kind of the same thing. This devout elderly couple who love God and who love Israel. And Zechariah is told, you're going to have a baby. He doesn't laugh. What does he do? He doubts. And then you have Mary, this young girl who is told she's going to have a baby. And not just any baby, the Son of God, 
And she submits. She believes. She says, okay. If you say so, this is, this is how it's going to happen. And so, you know, she does the only thing she can do. Because who is she going to tell? You know? She runs off to her relative Elizabeth. The only one who can possibly understand even a little bit about what she's going through. Because six months earlier, she found out she was going to have a baby. And so Mary runs off to Elizabeth. And, and watch what happens. Verse 40. When she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Elizabeth praises Mary for her belief and her faith that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And rich are the blessings to those who, who believe this. Mary demonstrates her faith by going to Elizabeth. She arrives, greets Mary. John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaps. Even before his birth, he's already pointing to Jesus. And it's as these, these women come together, and you, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's difficult to even imagine what that must have been like. What the conversation was. But what we do know is Mary erupts in praise. Most of our English Bibles record this as Mary's song. Or Mary's praise. But what it's really known as is the Magnificat. That's the, the first word in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation. It's, it's Magnificat. And it's as she and, and Elizabeth are together and they're talking about these extraordinary circumstances that they find themselves in. Because let's admit, this is strange, is it not? That God would choose to bring about his plan in such a way? It's very strange. And so Mary begins to speak and she said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm and he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our 
ancestors. Mary is pouring out her, her soul in praise over what is taking place. The Magnificat is gospel before Bethlehem. It is gospel before Calvary. It is gospel before Easter. It is gospel before resurrection. Mary's feelings are clear that God, God owes her nothing, yet has given her everything. Mary and Elizabeth searched the scriptures that, that spoke of, of, of hope, of, of joy, of, of fulfillment, of reversal, of victory over evil, and God coming to their rescue. The Magnificat is all about God. It is all about Jesus. It is all about revolution. Because God's people sit under the oppression of Rome. And they've sat under oppression for a long time. And the birth of Jesus is about righting what is wrong. It is about overthrowing injustice, overthrowing evil, overthrowing tyranny. It is about pulling God's people out of the, the upside down. And so these mothers, they, they come together to celebrate what God is doing through their sons, John and, and, and Jesus. You see, Luke is... Luke is setting the stage for what will take place as these boys grow up. And as they become agents of God's long-standing uh, promise of revelation and victory over the, the powers of evil, much of, of Mary's praise is going to be witnessed in the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. The Magnificat is one of the most famous songs in, in, in all the world. And I think that the, the takeaway for us today is found all the way back in, in, in verse 38 where Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. From the upside down, this teenage girl demonstrates a deep faith in the plan of God, even though she doesn't fully understand it or its implications, yet she, she humbly submits. Now then, how many times do we find ourselves in situations like that? Not, not a, a virgin birth, but how many times do we find ourselves in situations where we don't fully understand what God is doing? Anybody else's experience with that? Yeah, that's mine. Because we don't always know what God is up to. We don't see the full timeline, right? We don't understand all the things that are, that are going on in our, in our lives. And sometimes, tell me if, if I'm alone on this, but sometimes it's hard to trust in God. Because we, we're human. Sometimes it's hard to choose 
trusting in God. Because we get used to the upside down. We get used to the, the, the world the way it is and not the way that it, it should be. I know this from my, from my own life. Following him is, is not always easy. And, a, you know, a, a look into the scriptures verifies this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's going to be, be thought of one whose own soul is pierced because of him. Because we know just a few years later, her boy is going to hang on a cross. And while she has some inkling of what he's there to do, that's still her son who is going to hang there, yet she still, she still trusted. She still said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And that should be our response as well. Our response should, should be like Mary's. Uh, Old Testament uh, scholar Peter Enns writes in his book, The Sin of Certainty. He says, when we reach the point where things simply make no sense, when our thinking about God and life is uh, no longer line up, when any sense of certainty is gone, and when we can find no reason to trust God but we still do, well... That is what trust looks like at its brightest when all else is dark. Logically, Mary had very little reason to trust. I mean, this plan came out of nowhere. Never in a million years do I believe that teenage Mary expected to be the mother of the Son of God. Yet out of the silence, in the middle of the upside down, God spoke to her through an angel. And she said, may it be done according to your word. You know, I've often wondered if she ever looked back on that experience with Gabriel. Brushed it off as just her imagination. Until just a few weeks later, maybe she felt something stir inside of her womb for the first time. How difficult must it have been to trust God in those early days, yet she did. She trusted in God. Mary, this, this, this girl who pours out her praise to God and what he's going to do in this this beautiful song called the Magnificat, she invites us to do the same thing. To trust in God. And the same is true for those who believe that Elizabeth spoke of Mary. Rich are the blessings for those who trust in God. Join us next week for Major Things Chapter 6 when we talk about the birth of a king. Let's pray together.